Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit Credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. How do you make a radio ad for an 8K TV that conveys the feeling of 33 million pixels with over a billion shades of color hitting your eyeballs? This is the best we can do. Samsung Neo QLED 8K. Unreasonably good. Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to the Team House. This is episode 127. Hope everyone had a great holiday. I'm Jack Murphy, here with Dave Park. Just pointing out I'm the real Jack Murphy, the true Jigga Chad of our times. Uh, Not that fake guy, John Goldman. So don't ask me about the Cuck article. I mean, you can, but I didn't write it, okay? So it's not my fault. Today, we're very happy to have Steve Stratton here. He is a former Special Forces soldier. He served in the Secret Service and the White House Communications Agency. He's also the author of a new book called Shadow Tear that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, man. Uh, thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I uh, I wanted to start off, just kick off the... Oh, yeah, sorry. First, a word from our sponsors. Yeah, real quick, uh, for the people who keep the lights on. Um, hey, uh, one of our sponsors tonight, or our sponsor tonight, is ATAC Fitness. Um, selection starts here. If you go to their website, you'll see they have a great selection of gear for your water training, uh, your pre-scuba, your... Uh, U.S. Air Force Pararescue, your Special Forces, whatever you have. Um, they sell these in kits. They have a, they sell these nice rocket fins, open heel, very rigid, good stuff. Um, and it's good just for staying in shape, too, honestly. Uh, it's a good way when, you, when your knees start getting a little worn. Uh, they come with masks. You can either get these uh, this lower volume mask or the full volume mask if you need to do uh, clearing exercises. Uh, they come with these great little ropes because you have to be able to do your knots, right? Sort of. Slowly. It's not bad. Yeah. I haven't been drinking. And then also, you know, your snorkels for purging your uh, snorkel getting used to underwater. But check out their check out their selection of stuff. 
Uh, use Team 10 and the promo code for 10% off. Selection starts here. ATACFitness.com. So back to you, Steve. Uh, I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. We'd like to hear about your origin story, about sort of your upbringing and where you came from and what was that path that took you into governmental service. Yeah, so uh, grew up in Northern California, up in the Redwoods, Eureka, Arcata, you know, about 200, 300 miles north of uh, San Francisco. And um, it's funny, my family's 100%, at least until my generation, 100% Navy, merchant marine, on the water, all going all the time. Um, when I was a kid growing up, you know, we would go to Oakland Navy Yard and watch my dad sail off to to Vietnam with like third cab on the boat, stuff like that. And so uh, I was always outdoors. Um, as soon as I heard my name called, my mother was to go deeper in the woods. And, uh, uh, you know, we just spent a lot of time in the woods making forts, playing army, you know, and, and my dad would, would help with uh, make us weapons and different things like that. So, uh, yeah, in the woods a lot. Um, then after high school, I really didn't want to go to college. I, did re I really didn't want more schooling, as a matter of fact. So I was looking around for what to do. Started working in the lumber industry. Found out how hard that was, how easy it was to lose fingers and eyes and things like that. And uh, so I went to go see the uh, uh, Army recruiter. And the first thing he showed me was this video. This would have been 72. And he shows me this video, the Spartan video, and it's special forces training. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, part of that looks like it, it sucks, but it looks interesting. And um, then I went and checked out the Navy, realized, you know, I get sick real easy on the water. So that wasn't an option. Looked at the Air Force. And, and the Coast Guard and thought that's not hard enough. So I uh, went back to the Army recruiter and, and went down to Oakland and took all the tests. And uh, then, of course, he's trying to sign me up. I wanted to go to Fort Lewis, just up the back up the road in Washington, right? you know, and be part of the Ranger bat up there. Um, I scored really well in electronics. I thought I'd be in, you know, single signal company or something like that. And uh, so I joined up. But it wasn't until that was late 72 and it wasn't until late 73 that I joined up because I kicked around for a while and goofed off fishing, hunting, goofing off and stuff like that. Occasionally living in my parents, you know, basement kind of idea. And uh, so I went to basic at Fort Ord in December, spent about two weeks down there and then they let us go back home for Christmas break and then uh, did basic down there and they were you know, we're talking about the end of Vietnam, so they're like getting rid, rid of thousands of, of helicopter pilots, right? With 18 years, you can stay in if you want to be an E-5 kind of idea, where they were just kicking them out. So for some reason, these DIs put me through all these tests, like language school tests. You need an 18 to pass to go to DLI, I get a 17. You need a something, something to go to OCS, and I get one <laughs> less than that. You know, I kept scoring just right under the the uh, ability to go like to OCS or DLI. And then one day all of these uh, guys show up and they're in civilian clothes and longer hair looking good. And I'm way in the back of the theater and they're way up front and they're talking about this agency. We can't talk about it too much. 
Um, but, you know, it'll be good duty. You'll be in D.C. And so I kept sticking my hand up because I wasn't going to the field because <laughs> at Fort Ord, it's rainy and pissing down all the time. And so I thought, OK, well, I'll just stay here in the theater, keep raising my hand. <laughs> and uh, finally, um, they said, yeah, your scores are high enough and stuff. We're going to we're going to actually switch your MOS and we're going to make you uh, what they called at the time a 31 Echo. And that's like a depot level repair person where you get right down on the board and take out resistors, transistors and stuff. And um, I thought, okay, cool. So after basic, my first course was this, like, here's an eraser, don't touch the radio too much kind of maintainer school at Fort Ord. I mean, Fort Sill, sorry. And while we're at Fort Sill, um, we're, uh, two, two funny things happened there. One is uh, it I'd never seen this happen before, but there was a, a rainstorm and a, and a windstorm at the same time. So when my when I came out to my car, it looked like it had been covered in mud, like it was just you know ready to throw in the oven, bake 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 it. The other thing that happened was we were marching to the classroom one day when all of a sudden there's this huge explosion and a mushroom cloud, and we're all like, you know, we're we're new guys. We don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> so we're all freaked out. And like, Sarge, what do we do? What do we do? And they do. It's like, keep marching, you idiots. And then eventually I learned that it was some kind of demonstration, big 55-gallon drum thing, some nuclear explosion simulator. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I've not seen one since because I've, I've been around the real thing that we used to strap up, but – the uh that was that was strange and um the other funny thing at that school was right next to our class was the ground surveillance radar guys Mm -hmm. and um they had i saw this thing and it looked like a big fencing foil but it was a big steel thing with a huge rubber handle and stuff and it turned out this was for uh grounding out the klystrons and and the big heavy capacitors in this like uh, Hawk missile system kind of radar, and it would make uh, uh, the the biggest Frankenstein kind of noise when these people would ground out stuff right in the other room. We'd all stop. A couple times during our class, the medics came running down with a stretcher because somebody had their arm in the wrong spot, grounded something out, you know, blew a hole in their arm, that kind of thing. So, Fort Sill, uh, not not one of those places I'd wish on anybody. No, you know, no, but, not, uh, fun, not yeah. a fun place. No, no. If you're looking for big snakes, you like rattlesnakes. Not bad, not bad. But a uh, lot in Oklahoma, not a place. So from there, he put me on the bus, and it's off to Fort Gordon. Now Fort Gordon's got some culture, right? Because I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, eat a peach kind of guy. And I like the Almond Brothers, and they've got a bar downtown. Uh, whenever they're going to let us new guys get released, you know, after the you know, your obligatory, you know, three or four weeks on base, locked on base. Um, and that course was um, self, um, what would you call it, where you could test out. You could go as fast as you could test out in this course. And it was a 16-week course. And some of this gear, uh, by today's standards, of course, is very old. Uh, we're talking a lot of uh, <laughs> things they even talk about nowadays, but HF. So I learning antenna theory and how to make antennas and how to bend antennas and talk around the world. 
And uh, we had uh, students with us from, from Lebanon, from Jordan, and a couple African countries. And, uh, you know, it was fun because they were um, sort of like, they were warrants or officers who were in the course to, to take the course to get the certificate. But, you know, the language barrier and everything else, they were, right. they were, being, they were being assisted through the course. And um, it turned out to be a real fun place when we got weekends off, um, you know, whether it was to go see if the almonds showed up, all my brothers showed up at their bar or go down. I forget the name of the lake there, but to get onto the lake and go camp and to just get away from the base was, was a lot of fun. And a couple of times we, we did that classic young soldier thing where after last formation, we jump in a car, we bolt to it down to Florida, and then we come back, you know, stuffing our uniforms on to jump into formation kind of thing, hoping we don't get arrested on the way. Um, and uh, there was a couple other guys um, that were headed to interesting units. Like I met um, a guy who was headed off to 10th group uh, to be in the signal company in Germany. Uh, he was a good buddy there for a while and another couple of guys. And we started to race each other into courses. And um, we were all pretty neck and neck. And I got to this one test and I could not figure out what was going wrong I couldn't figure out what was wrong with this system. And I looked at this system and, and the instructors like, I'll be back in a minute. I'm going to have a smoke break. So as soon as he left the room, there was a can in the middle of the system and it didn't have a keyway. So it didn't. So I, I picked it up, turned the system off, picked it up, turned it 90 degrees, stuffed it back in the system and turned on the power and pff, little smoke came up. And when it came back in, I'm like, there's the problem. And uh, I actually got away with that. He passed me on that part of the course. But uh, uh, it, was, it was a fun course, but it was also totally irrelevant. Because when I got to White House Com, we were using Motorola walkie-talkies for the Secret Service. We had some RCAA radios on White House, uh, uh, Air Force One. And, uh, but mostly, we just had Motorola gear. We had walkie-talkies, big, long things like this. And, we had some other five watt radios where the whole bottom was full of D cell batteries and the handset looked like a phone. And that was really cool because you could be, uh, you know, on a trip in Wisconsin, pull up to a, pull up to a stop sign next to a young lady and go, here's a phone call for you, you know? And, and uh, of course that never worked. That, that line never worked, but <laughs> you know, we had some pretty fun gear. Um, it was a uh, walk. It was very strange. I was always tested on uh, army gear. I had to take tests on my, the army gear I trained on, but never used for promotion. Right. And then like say we used everything else. My, uh, I trained on this army system, HF system, big, huge thing. And as it turned out, our backup for the president, when the president would travel in the U S like when uh, Carter went to St. Simon's Island and he's out there fishing, we had this Navy system called the URT, Big HF system, would be our backup uh, communications. It's amazing um, that they do it all with cell phones now, huh? Or Oh, uh, man. Yeah. And private email servers? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> private email service, exactly. Um, the, uh, um, yeah, the gear. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I, you know, I learned Morse code. I had, a, a you know, a, a leg key and stuff when I eventually got into SF, but... Uh, I can remember the first 
secure fax we had that included encryption, it would take eight of us to get it off the back of the truck. <laughs> and yeah, so when I started at WACA, we actually um, ran the White House, and they probably still do, run the White House uh, switchboard. But down in the corner of the EOB, if you've, got the, if you've got the White House, you're looking at the White House and the EOB is on the left, then on your far left front corner was the, was the WACA switchboard. And so we had red switch and, and we could do all these connections and, and, you know, connect to the Kremlin and do all kinds of fun stuff. But it was literally a, a cord with a plug. Right. And, uh, you know, you would tap on it to see if somebody was on the line and all this. And when the president would go to New York, we had some pre-positioned, what they would call 555 switchboards up in New York that we would have to roll out and plug in and connect the lines wow. so that so the job of WACA, to back up for a second, the job of WACA is to support the president, the vice president, whoever else, you know, who the office there determines we should um, with communications. So back in my day, radio communications so we had many sites around dc to provide communications for motorcades and movement up to, to up to the hill or you know out to andrews and things like that so we had radio sites all over but what we would do is we would take this gear and we would go to atlanta and set it up for a presidential visit so we would go in advance and it was all this radio gear and so when uh, um i was installing this stuff and, and maintaining it and uh, along with a lot of other WACA people. And then there was another group that was the audiovisual group that would like put the presidential seal up on a podium and have the mics ready, things like that. We even had, WACA even had right near uh, over there by uh, NPS on bowling, we had a photo lab. So WACA back in my day would do all the uh, photos for the White House photographers. So like Nixon's Ford's photographers, things like that. Um, that, that you could just walk up into that lab and I've got stacks of pictures that had blemishes in them, but it's like a picture of Ford at Vail or uh, I've got a picture down here with uh, Rod Carew, right? The baseball star meeting Vice President Mondale, but they didn't give it to anybody because it had a little blemish in it kind of thing. So Waka was, um, you know, for a 19-year-old who'd never left California, right, whose first duty station is in Georgetown at the corner of Wisconsin and M, right above the bayou, uh, a great place to go see John Prine, by the way, back in the day. Um, it was amazing. I thought the Army's the best thing ever compared to crawling in the mud, you know, with uh, the battalion, <laughs> Ranger Battalion up in, uh, up in Fort Lewis. Yeah. I thought I was in pretty high cotton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you have any, any interesting time? Because when you got there, were you first working for the Carter administration? No. Funny story. So I come up from uh, Fort Gordon, and my sponsor meets me. There was a place called the Chart House, which would be right inside the, where the Beltway is now on 95. And so I'm just there waiting for my sponsor to show up. He takes me around the Beltway over to the bowling Anacostia side. And I'm thinking, I've never seen so much uh, chain link fence and bob wire. And I asked him if we were 
we were near a federal prison. And he said, no, we're just in Anacostia. Uh, <laughs> and then we crossed back down over in, on, uh, into town. And he says, you know what that is? And I said, is that that, is that what they call, isn't that the Watergate? And he's like, yeah, don't go there. I got to Waka two weeks before Nixon resigned. Oh. And my sponsor said, don't go to the Watergate. Do not eat at that Howard Johnson's across the street. I'm like, yes, sir. Gotcha. <laughs> I see the significance of this. Um, but uh, so, so yeah, the place where um, my first duty station was at is actually now a set of shops and underground parking. And the underground parking was um, uh, an alternate communications area where you could see where there were teletypes used to be hooked up and stuff like that. Uh, just all this old gear. And um, so we were, you know, we were getting into more, uh, you know, 70s technology and radios and things like that. We had, we had made this first secure fax machine. Man, I mean, this thing was big, right? And um, then I got asked, one of the first things I got asked to do was to finish a secure telephone switch. Here's the plans. The guy who built this just passed away. We'd like you to finish it. So I'm like, uh, I don't know, uh, you know. But so that's what I worked on when I wasn't um, prepping to go on a trip. So my first trip after uh, Ford, Ford took, uh, took the presidency and my first trip out of the United States or actually out of California besides Fort Sill and Fort Gordon uh, was to uh, um, Dhaka, Bangladesh. And I, we went through Paris, and I thought, uh, you got to, because of the flights, we got to stay over, and I got to see the lights and things, and then let's get on the plane and go. We go to New Delhi, and um, for some reason, we ended up in Old Delhi because somebody wanted to buy some gold and that kind of thing. And then we go to Dhaka, Bangladesh. And as a kid growing up, I had been at, voracious reader of National Geographic, mm -hmm. right? That's how I saw the world. I could care less about the states and their capitals. I could care less about the, yeah, we had a gold rush in California. Thank you. Whatever. Uh, you know, I wanted to see the world. That was part of my draw to the military, actually, was wanting to see the world, getting out of little Northern California. And um, the further, the closer we got to Bangladesh, the more poverty I saw, that that I know woke up woke is a bad <laughs> a funky term right now, but it just uh, shocked me to my core that there were people living like this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and because even in, in, in National Geographic, they make it look like well, they're natives and they live in huts, and this is their way. But when you see people in abject poverty, uh, one of the first things I saw in Bangladesh was. I'm not sure where it came from, but just being aware of what's going on, it's like, okay, here's a guy sleeping on the median. We go to the, we go to the uh, consulate, um, and I'm noticing the bullet holes in the wall as we go up into the building, and uh, thinking, okay, this is interesting, and we have our meeting. We come back out. He's still sleeping there. We go back the next morning. He's still sleeping there. <laughs> the next yeah, we come out that evening and he's no longer there, right? But the dents there where he was laying. And so I had never experienced that before. And it really, you know, um, opened my eyes, right? And um, 
course, um, we, we, uh, back in those days, we had to fly American character carriers. So we flew on Pan Am if we flew commercial and we stayed in the intercontinental hotel. And, uh, I was, um, didn't really drink. I was, I forget what I was having and I didn't even drink coffee at this time or, 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 or liquor or anything like that. So I was probably having a ginger ale or something at the bar and this pretty little uh, French girl showed up and uh, I ended up buying her dinner and making the mistake of eating um, shrimp out of the Delta. And uh, <laughs> yes, yes. You can imagine I, I uh, had to apply some medicine uh, <laughs> to uh, slow that down. Um, so that was, that, that was interesting. Um, as was all of my time in Waka. There, there were times when I was, uh, bored just because I'm that kind of guy. I'm always looking, um, you know, to get into stuff and look at stuff. And, um, um, so I'm in the electronics branch and they moved us out of Georgetown to, um, those old French airplane hangars that were there at uh, Bowling Air Force Base. They built buildings inside of them because they couldn't get rid of them. They're historic, right? So they build these buildings inside the hangars and they move us in. And then within six months, I could put my hand between the cinder block and the, and the, the steel pylon, I mean, the uh, cement pylon, because we're right there on, on the Potomac River and the building's starting to sink already. It was pretty oh, funny. Wow. What, My what, boss is, what's the story about the French hang, hangers? The, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I imagine they weren't from the French and Indian War. No, uh, evidently, uh, you know, Anacostia was a, was a naval air base at one point. So, so where DIA and uh, Marine One and Waka is now had, had uh, a history of, of pre-World War II, like uh, testing Buffalo aircraft and things like that. Um, I don't know a Buffalo was, I think it was a fighter bomber, whatever they had. But so there was, there was testing going on there and somewhere, I don't know if it was back in Billy Mitchell days or something, they ended up with these, they, they just looked, they weren't metal, but they, they were like metal, um, metal with like cement over them, almost like you'd see at a normal fighter base today, but they had some kind of preservation, um, you know, uh, encapsulation around them. So Waka decided to build the building inside of them and that <laughs> sort of failed pretty badly. My boss at the time, I'm in an electronics branch and my boss was a, a Navy, um, uh, he was a Navy E8. That it, oh, he was an LDO, I think is what they call it in the Navy, right? Limited duty officer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so he, uh, he had his E8 suit behind the door but he was a lieutenant commander and we're in electronics and his name was bob ohm and i thought okay this is a little strange <laughs> he's a great guy so i was getting a little bit bored with the radio stuff i mean loving going on trips but just sort of being in town and and, and fixing transistors and radios and stuff not not such a big deal so i just started sneaking over to the administrative building and that's where our electronic countermeasure guys were and they had this system from Fox, and they were dialing and tweaking and looking for stuff. And man, that was exciting. That was interesting. Now we're now we're really in the spy business. We're looking for stuff in the walls and things like that. And uh, I finally he started to look for me. <laughs> like where'd Stratton go? You know, see a wall. What's going on? 
and uh, he found me over there. And I said, I wanted, I'd like to transfer over here and learn this technology and stuff like that. And, and uh, he wouldn't let me do it. So uh, carry on a couple more years. He leaves, we get another guy and, and uh, another commander and stuff like that. And um, during, during my four and a half years at Waka, I went on presidential trips. Like I went on every trip that Ford went to Vail. That's where I learned how to ski was Vail. And, um, but I really, really, um, I had this, uh, uh, I don't know if it would, they like, they like me or whatever, but I ended up going with Rockefeller a lot. So, uh, at Vail, uh, <laughs> one story, and it's funny because when I read, uh, Lions of Lucerne from Brad Thor, right, I'm reading it. It's like, it's like he's written this from somebody who knows what goes on at Vail with the secret service and the president. But we used to, I used to uh, literally have uh, uh, PRC 77 on my back and ski as, once again, as a, just an alternate level kind of communication, ski behind President Ford. And I wasn't paying attention one day and he slipped on, on uh, big steps or giant steps. He slipped down and I look up and it's like lifting a foot and going by the president. The Secret Service is, is yucking it up about, you know, Stratton's trying to kill the president, you know gorham with the ski and stuff like that so i had to live that part down um it's not the only time i had to live stuff down with the secret service but um yeah it was a, it was a really good time um i remember um talk about deep snow and, and the snows that, that that you guys have had on the east coast lately uh we were we would fly we would fly the 141 into grand junction and uh after the first uh, sort of like pre-visit trip where we're bringing the whole team in, right? And we've got a, we've got a, uh, the president's going to fly Air Force One into Grand Junction and then motorcade all the way into, uh, at this point, he wouldn't fly into Eagle or anywhere closer. So we would motorcade him in. And uh, I had to go up on top of this bluff to put up this radio antenna. And my friend John's with me and we're in this snowcat. And John's not feeling good. He's not doing good at altitude. We're at, you know, 10, 11,000 feet. And uh, I'm like, hey, excuse me, I got to go. You know, I'm just going to step out the back of the cat. And I open the door. And thank God I held on to the door because I was hanging from the door. The snow was so deep that it was well over my head. And I'm like crawling back into the cat, snow cat. And when we got to this uh, site, we would usually put our, uh, we would put our antennas up on like old fire towers, right? Uh, none of them have, it's funny, fire towers and uh, municipal airport towers, you know, for their um, traffic control folks are always like 99 feet high. Cause if they go a hundred, they need an, <laughs> they're supposed to have a elevator and none of them have it. So you get to carry all your gear up. But this thing was like coated in ice. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to put this antenna up there? And I'm slipping and sliding. And thank God I had some climbing gear and built myself in. But poor John, he didn't feel too good. Um, and uh, when we got down, when we got down um, and da back down to where we were going to head back, uh, the Kurz distributor was sitting there. And he's like, I need you to fill up your, because we drove station wagons at the time. I need you to fill up your station wagon. Take this back over to Vail. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't be taking your. And he's like, dude, dude, take it easy. You know, 
talk to talk to chief so-and-so he said it's okay you can take you know you can you can carry this big load of Kerr's beer back over to the station so we ended up uh being a parent can be really challenging it's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children that's why child and family resource network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting visit child and family resource network.org today Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. In Vail, uh, our CP was Billy Jack's house, uh, Laughlin's house. And President Ford stayed at another house right around the circle, um, belonged to one of the oil big guys in oil. And uh, in the back of our command post, it was just stacks of Kerr's beer and stuff like that. And, you know, people are people are going out the back and sliding around and falling down the snow. It's just- Steve, you uh, looking at your bio, I mean, you pulled uh, the communications details for Presidents Ford, Carter, and Vice Presidents Rockefeller and Mondale, as well as Secretary Henry Kissinger. You must have a few spicy stories from uh, working around that crew. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. The, um, the Secret Service managed Kissinger before, uh, you know, diplomatic security DS put a detail around him, right? And so we, uh, <laughs> we're, we're running back and forth doing the shuttle diplomacy with Kissinger. And, and I don't know if this is spicy, but this is the kind of power these kind of people can wield, right? His wife, Nancy, Kissinger's wife, Nancy, was with him, and they were, like, in Israel, and she wasn't feeling well, and the uh, Kissinger had the Air Force fly in some, like, foremost milk from California so she could feel better, right? It's like, just, I don't care what else is going on, just get the jet out here with some milk for my wife kind of idea. Um, <laughs> President Ford's sons loved to ski the back bowls. Because they could get away from everybody else in the back bowl with a bowl. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, another funny one is Mondale. He's uh, going trout fishing up at Big Meadows in um, Skyline Drive. And back in these days, right, we didn't, 
we had we had the cellular phones, but they only worked in town, like the big suitcase phone, right, which was the start of cellular. Um, so we have to do this radio patch kind of idea. So I'm in the middle, flipping a switch, you know, and Mondale's saying over, and his wife is saying over, and we're flipping a switch, and he's like, "Steve, put in the put in the call to the BP's residence," and I put a I put the call in and he gets his son on the phone and it turns out his son has been riding his motocross bike, tearing up the yard and the lawn around the VP house there on Massachusetts Avenue. He's like, damn it. If you're having a party, you better not be smoking weed. And I'm flipping the switch going, Oh man, I don't know. I'm hearing this shit, you know, <laughs> crack on the newspaper. You're breaking up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. And, uh, Oh, just, yeah, stuff like that, you know, but mainly kids. Like, I sat outside the presidential yacht there at Anacostia um, because Susan Ford had a party. And I was the communicator of the day and, you know, sitting there with a couple of Secret Service guys. And I'm just like, are we going to go in? Are we going to have to jump in the Anacostia if one of these idiots falls over drunk? And then all the agents are like, no, I'm not getting in that river. <laughs> There's a Navy dive school, but, you know, they put on serious gear to go into Anacostia. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, sp <laughs> spicy stories, yeah. The other the other one that was pretty funny was 77, Carter goes to Poland. Then he has meetings and stuff, and then it is snowing like a son of a gun when he's at the airport getting ready to leave, and he's going to give some remarks. Well, I'm in the back just sort of monitoring our radio gear, make sure it stays up and things like that. And the Polish Secret Service assigned a guy to me, you know, and the next thing you know, he's getting salmon, which in Poland, you get a can of salmon and the salmon's just cut through. Like if the salmon's long, they just cut it through and it's got the bones and stuff. And we're eating salmon and we're having, and of course we're having not vodka, but what they call the spiritus, which is like moonshine. And we're drinking and stuff like that and listening to the president out there. And then the president says uh, his um, interpreter said that he lusted after the Polish people, like sexually lusted after them. It was a big deal. And the, the Polish the Secret Service guy is spitting his food out. I'm crying and laughing. And we kept... After, after he left, I kept waiting for people to pick me up, and nobody was picking me up. So I kept drinking stuff with this guy. And uh, then all of a sudden, he starts pulling out his pistols. He's got like three. He's got two ankle holsters, and he's got a pistol. And so I'm jo joking around. They're all sort of like Walter knockoffs, and I'm taking them apart, just joking with him. Turns out he doesn't know how to put them back together, and I'm too drunk to put them back together. So anyway, um, it all worked out okay. I, I woke up in the, in the basement of the uh, embassy and, and with some friends around me going, what the hell was all that about? But, well, uh, I, it all worked out okay for you. You don't know what happened to him after when he shows oh, no. up with three disassembled pistols. <laughs> you know, like a plastic bag. Yeah, play, exactly. You know, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in an empty tuna can. <laughs> so, oh, man, they were some hard-drinking people. So, yeah. Steve, how did you then uh, make this transition from Waka over to the Secret Service? How did that take place? Well, yeah, I'm working with them every day, right? Because we're providing the Secret Service with um, their radios that they're using out in the field, changing their batteries, all that. We set up these base stations they're using to communicate on different frequencies, 
part of the advanced team and when the full team comes in with the president. Uh, one of the other things we did is we would set up these phone systems and radio systems on a, what we called alpha frequency, and those were for the staff, you know, the real people that could piss you off, right, the staff, staff members. And uh, so we're working with them all the time. So um, they actually asked me and, and said there was an opening, and I said, where? And they said, in the ECM, <laughs> in the ECM unit. I'm like, oh, man, that would be so great. And so they're like, all you got to do is take the civil service test. So I'm paying no attention. I'm goofing off. I take the test. I fail it. I'm like, oh, shit. By one point? Like, you, huh? By one point? I'm just. Oh, no. By, by a bunch. I'm, oh. I, you know, there's all this gym part that I just not paying attention to. And so I study. I go back and take the test. And by this time, that position is gone. But there's a position in the alarms and video shop. So making sure the, the video cameras and all the alarm systems around the White House, the VP House, uh, presidential candidates and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I took it. I was I was a GS5, you know, roaring and ripping in yeah. my uh, in my uh, I mean, dressed to the nines. Right. I'm in my Jacques Penet reversible you know vest suits and stuff like that i got i mean you know i've gone from e5 to, to gs5 and a little bit more money but uh yeah so the transition there wasn't hard if you if you worked hard they liked you they liked your attitude whatever you know it, it was pretty easy um so during that, that that time in the secret service um there was <laughs> the funny thing was when i got there they're like Here's your, here's your bulletproof vest, and uh, here's your radio, and here's your credentials. You know, you're good to go. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, where's, where's the sidearm? And at the time, the Secret Service used a Model 19 357 Magnum revolver, a little nasty thing to tear your suits up and all kinds of good stuff. But, I mean, you know, pretty powerful, even a two-inch 357 will put a herd on a person, right? And they, they're like, no, you know, you don't, you're a technical security specialist. You don't get one of these. I'm like, what do you mean? Am I just supposed to jump in a way, take a bullet? They're like, yeah, you're Secret Service. Of course you are. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. So every time I went on a trip, I, you know, I told, I would, the Secret Service guys not to, got to know my background. So I had a soft pack shotgun or I had an Uzi. So if you remember when uh, President Reagan was shot, you know, Mad Dog pulled out the, Jack the Uzi out of this Samsonite briefcase. And uh, so I was always around that kind of stuff. I didn't, I, I liked the idea of becoming an agent, but I just didn't want to, as I said, used to say, I didn't want to stand in the hallway waiting to get shot. Uh -huh. So being on the advanced team all the time, working tech, uh, I got to go um, to schools like, like uh, EOD school out uh, the Navy school out in Maryland I got to go to Harvey Point for IEDs, um, uh, Fort Bragg. I got to go a lot of places. And this is just when I'm just the communicator knucklehead, you know, just switched to, to Secret Service. So, Is that because uh, even though you were a communicator, was it just that the tech side was one big umbrella that where you could kind of pick any school? Well, yeah. So being a tech security specialist, they, they expected you to be able to work with EOD teams and, and handle 
advance work like that. Now, I did alarms and video normally. There was an EOD chem weapons team uh, in TSD. There was uh, a locks, you know, kind of uh, group that did locks and ciphers and safes and stuff like that. Um, the Secret Service itself had the whole driver side, the guys that drove the vehicles and the beasts and, you know, on the, all the backups. And in my day, my day, another funny little story is, right, like I said, we drove, we didn't have SUVs yet, Suburbans yet, so we were driving station wagons. We had armored station wagons. We had armored Continentals. We had the Cadillac, Hess Eisenhardt Cadillac, and, and uh, we had these station wagons. And uh, a guy who had been there since uh, LBJ told me that one time LBJ gave one of the armored station wagons away to a Baptist minister down in Texas. You know, it was Christmas present. <laughs> so, and those, things, and those things stop on a dime, too. Oh yeah, if you got a whole if you got a whole shit ton of dimes, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah. So so Steve, yeah. Steve. I normally I I did the alarms and video, but then on advance I'm there for really for the uh, I I would bring in the EM uh, EM team right to do their scans. I would schedule EOD teams to help, uh, you know, whether it's the elevator in the hotel or work the route right because back in the day before we had the the uh concrete barriers we used to do barrels mm-hmm. right and then put tamper tape on the barrel fill it with water put tamper tape and and police tape on it you know up and down like uh pennsylvania avenue like when the pope came you know things like that so uh, yeah it's funny how much tech like you said guys how much tech has evolved in in my lifetime i've seen the tech evolve um but uh, yeah, the the uh, craziness got it got really crazy in the eighty um, campaign, right? Uh, I was now at GS seven, and I was working so much that like halfway through the year, I burned through all the uh, scheduled overtime and unscheduled overtime. I could make no more money in the year, sort of you know July August time frame, and I'm like, oh well. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, still traveling. We had our own, uh, even in Waka in the secret service, I have my own GTR book. I could write a plane ticket to anywhere. You know, I had my credentials, I had a black passport, uh, you know, for, for GS7 living pretty high. I just didn't have a gun. Uh, and I remedied that most of the time by carrying my high power. I'm a very, I'm a high power fan. And uh, besides the 1911, it fits my hand best. And so I would, I would carry it. And most of the time, uh, the special agents in charge were fine because they knew they could trust me. I'm not, you know, just going to start banging away with the gun. And uh, uh, yeah, so it was, I, there was, I think I worked 11 months out of 12 and I decided I needed a break. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go down to Florida. I'm going to scuba dive, skydive, goof off, sit at the beach. And I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, by the way, you know, I'm not coming back. And uh, <laughs> that was the end of my Secret Service career. Um, I have a lot of... of um, 
I think these the Secret Service guys are great. I think uh, the um, personally the Secret Service got a little bit too big for their pants, leaving bullets in rooms, not paying for ladies, doing things that that we would never consider. Right? We always paid for ladies. We did. We did. <laughs> we, we did. We did. We we. We did things, but we also just made sure that we didn't embarrass the Secret Service or ourselves, right, you know? And, right. um, yeah, so, um, yeah, it was a good time. There was, uh, like I say, lots of good travel. But, you know, unfortunately, when you're in that mode, whether it's Walker or Secret Service, you're going to all these great places. People are like, wow, you've been all over the world. And I'm like, yeah, and I, I, I had about 12, 12 minutes to see it, you know? Right. I need to go back. Now that I'm getting ready to retire, I need to go back to those places and actually explore the town, right? right? Uh, probably not going back to Dhaka, Bangladesh, but, um, you know, maybe some of the prettier places I've been. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was that was a switch, a break in my career, and uh, it was it was welcome because I was – I was pretty burnt out after eight and a half years between walk and the secret service of being gone, going all the time. Well, I want to talk about the next stage of your career, Steve, but before I get into that, I just want to tell our viewers about our Patreon. Uh, so the team house is also on Patreon. And if you guys go and check it out, it's patreon.com slash the team house. There's also a link down in the description and consider supporting the show, supporting the stream. You guys have kept us going over the last couple of years. You keep us in the booth and you keep the lights on. So we appreciate it. And when you join, you get access to two bonus episodes a month and also a lot of bonus segments with our guests um, that we've recorded. I mean, there's probably days and days worth of bonus segments on there at this point. So back to Steve. What was it then that got you back into uh, back? In, I mean, back into in this case, special forces. But I mean, after you kind of had this experience, like I'm kind of done with working for the man. What brought you back? Well, yeah. So so um, you know, running my own little alarm business down in Florida and stuff like that. Just just not not real exciting, right? Uh, you know, some interesting problems, you know, uh, I had this one customer, he, he was a ham radio guy. He loved ham radio stuff. And up in Brooksville, north of Tampa, when you, uh, nowadays, when you watch the map of lightning hits, there are places that turn black, right? There's so many lightning hits in Florida. And this poor guy kept putting up his antenna and then a storm would come along and it would vaporize my, my, um, alarm connections in the windows. It would burn the ends of the wire off and stuff, the, the lightning. It would kill every appliance that was plugged in in his house. Anyway, did that a couple of times, and I thought, you know, this isn't this isn't really getting it for me. I just, just you know, I, I need more action or stimulus, right? Um, so I, uh, I started checking around and um, Back in those days, we had the 11 Special Forces, the Reserve, mm -hmm. uh, headquartered out of Meade. And then we also had the 20th out of Florida. I mean, um, Georgia or Mississippi? Mississippi, I think, is where group headquarters is. And the 20th wasn't taking anybody. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll join up and, and do the 11th thing. Uh, did a little bit of uh, 
um, signal company rack rig stuff just because, you know, I knew what it basically was. <laughs> the rack rigs still had teletypes in them and stuff like that. Um, and about this time, you know, uh, Commodore, Vic computers, Commodores are starting to get into the public, you know, with your little cassette to tune, tune them up and, yeah. and little program. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I did the 11th for a little while. It was very interesting. We had, uh, I was very lucky as, even as, uh, you know, non-jump qualified, then, then going to Benning and doing jump school, uh, there were people who were advisors that would come through, like Kenny Mullen, who was on the Sante Prison Raid, learned a lot. You know, um, uh, John Jacob, Sergeant Major Jacob Venko came down and I hosted his scuba team and stuff like that. And, and uh, so there are just a lot of guys still sort of at the end of their careers, but mm -hmm. still in. And so I'm absorbing everything I can. And I was really interested in becoming a Delta and, you know, a, a medic. Yeah. And I went right. Off the <laughs> yeah. Right. Steve, once they find out what you did, there's, yeah, you're going in one direction only. I know. Well, they let me go to uh, the 11th, let me go to uh, a 91 bullet stopper school, you know, combat medic, you know, band-aid medic. And uh, of course, being at Fort Sam with, with all these young ladies right out of basic training was a fun time. And, uh, uh, but then when I got over to the 20th, they're like, no, no, dude, you know, you know, more combo than, than some of these radio guys. I was like, okay, thanks. You know? And so I started to learn how, how much you could stuff into an Alice pack. Right. Radio. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Radios are batteries and more batteries. And, uh, anyway, so it was a really good time. I was, uh, I had, I gone, gotten a job at DOE, well, with General Electric at a GOCO. So the Pinellas plant, what we did there was we made we made batteries and parts for the initiators that would end up going back to Sandia, Rocky Flats, and other things. So we're making nuclear weapon parts. Mm. And um, so I found out the hard way that being cleared for ridiculous on the DOD side, they could care less on the, on the DOE side. I went, I went 18 months before finally the site manager just said, here's your queue clearance. This is ridiculous. I don't know what you did to piss them off, but I'm going to give you the clearance here now because I'm tired of escorting you back into the queue space and yeah, at the plant. And uh, I got really lucky. I hit this plant right as they were uh, had let a contract that Johnson Controls won to take the analog you know, switches your normal home alarm system and digitize it. So my first computer school was right up in, 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 in the middle of New York City. It was a deck computer school right there next to the, uh, I forget if it was next to the garden or the train station. But um, so I, they, they started sending me to computer schools. And uh, that's how I got the transition from radios, alarms, and video to, to actually computers. And GE helped me with that, which was sort of funny. So I'm starting to lose, learn these high-end, um, what would now be called SCADA-type computers oh. for, for managing plants and things like that. And at my 20th group, I've got this aluminum Halliburton case. And it's black. And it's got a dial on it. It's got all kinds of tape on it. And I crank it open, and the guys are like, 
here's your crypto gear. Check this out. And my crypto gear, part of my burst radio gear was a wind-up toy. <laughs> so literally, you would, you would take the one-time pads, you would make your own strip, you uh -huh. would load this in, and then you'd hit the button, and it would unwind. And that's how we did burst transmission. Wow. And I, so I'm, I'm, on the one hand, I'm a computer geek, and the other hand, I'm going back into the 50s. You know, of course, this stuff's in the, in the crypto museum now. And that's, that's one of the things that cracks me up about. I'm 67. I can go to a Boeing museum. I can go to the crypto museum. I can go to the Fort Bragg museum and there's stuff I used, you know, it's yeah. like, God. That's how you, you, know, you, you know. That, that's how you know you earned the gray in your beard. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. So, um, yeah. And um, so through that work, I started to, uh, CENTCOM was standing up over at McDill. There was readiness command, but CENTCOM standing up. And through a friend, I heard that that SAIC was hiring. And they're interested in network people. And I'm like, ooh, well, I know a network, a network. You know, I don't know what they're talking about. So uh, I checked in with them. And uh, the guy who was running the program was the former J6 uh, from readiness command, Bob, and a former colonel, of course. And because SAIC likes to hire colonels, likes to hire former directors of the CIA and other people, right? I influencers. And uh, I ended up over there helping, uh, you know, stand up more of the digital uh, framework uh, in J6 of CENTCOM. So I transitioned over there at the same time, I, you know, I, I'd already done uh, uh you know, jump school and I got like 86. Now I'm getting, uh, you know, uh, got my beret and stuff like that and starting to go on, on more than just training or, or like Florida based AT, right. You know, start, we start heading down, uh, range. The first place we went though, uh, we were still, I get, we were still tied to 10th group. And, uh, the first actual mission I went on is a, you know, as a certified Green Beret, so to speak, is is uh, um, Tunisia. So we're, we're you know, we, we connect up with the Sahara Brigade. We're putting on all the gear. You know, I, you know, Lawrence Arabia, it's really cool. And um, I remember this, this camel spit on me and it pissed me off. <laughs> so I smacked it as hard as I could. Oh, like Arnold and Conan. Oh, man. No, this thing. I couldn't use my hands for about four days. It hurt so bad. Those things got the biggest. I used to think my German Shepherd had a hard head. This, this thing, I hit it in the wrong spot, but it sort of sort of obeyed. So we we went to Tunisia, got a Tunisian wing, so it goofed off, whatever. Did that mission. We tried to get over to the to the border with Libya, but they they didn't want to go over that side. They kept saying the guy over there was crazy. Um, so uh, we came back. And then we got refocused to where, as, as part of 3rd Battalion, we were focused with 7th um, uh, Group now. And that's where the work down into South America started, Panama, um, uh, Ecuador, and Colombia, primarily the three places. Um, so I'm working at CENTCOM, helping stand it up, traveling as a contractor to Egypt and Jordan, you know, and things like that, building computer systems, 
figuring out how to stuff them in boxes so we could transport them 7,000 miles because we we didn't even have SATCOM overhead, right? Right when we kicked out the first Gulf War. Uh, but one of the cool things was being on base, SAIC won the J-2 support contract. So now I'm over there helping them in, in the new SOCOM headquarters, right, where they just sort of took a bunch of guys from readiness command and grabbed some other guys and created a special forces command, special operations command. And um, I knew the, the National Guard Bureau advisor. I knew some people in the J-3. And that's how I started to get my team uh, counter drug missions. So, right. The, the president had signed that directive saying yeah. you can go train. And, uh, so we would load up a 141 at, in Tampa. We'd throw a couple helicopters in it, a couple teams. And for example, we flew out and did a counter drug mission at the behest of DEA in, um, Los Padres national forest, North of LA. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it was an area they hadn't touched in a while. This was before, you know, the wildlife guys started getting into working the counter-drug stuff, you know, that they, right. they do nowadays and stuff like that. And so DEA had said, you know, it's like, hey, Steve, here's four different things. What do you want to do? And it's like, well, that's that's nasty Arizona. I don't want to do that. Let's go to California. So we, we worked out of Vandenberg, and we would fly in, Hilo in. And we were so lucky. We had some, we had a CW5, a couple guys. I mean, these guys like had, had more hours in a, in a, in a Huey than I had on the planet, right? These guys were ex Vietnam guys and stuff. Great helicopter pilots. And, um, so we did our intelligence prep the battlefield and we're looking and it's like, why do you want us to go work here? It's like, you've been in like three years of drought, you know, there's like, you know, if somebody's got water, they're going to be bringing it in, right? Or they're going to dig a well or they're going to do something else. They're going to make some kind of – give us a signature, right? And they're like, no, we haven't checked this. You know, the thing that we're really worried about and uh, we'd like you guys to check out is uh, we think there's gangs in there uh, making making drugs in, in semi-trailers. And I'm like, oh, you want us to go in there and check and see if the gangs are in there? who are probably better armed than we are, right? So we did. It turned out it was it was drought. There was very little water. We found uh, a trailer near an old grow. And what they were starting to do was, like, take pots of pot and bring them up into the trees, right? So they would, they would water them and then pull them back up in the trees because it was harder for uh, the guys with the infrared to see them when they're in the trees versus down on the ground or in a big old field, right? So we found a trailer, we found a, a, a runway, probably been used, you know, 30, 45 days earlier kind of idea. I could see some marks and things like that. And we found, we found a trailer. And I tell you what, the, the pucker factor was pretty high when we, we come over the rise and we see the trailer and we're all like hair on, it, on end, you know, wondering if, if the gang's around. And they had, they, they, there was artifacts there drums there, some chemicals, but nothing, nothing of substance, nobody there hiding it and stuff. So that was really good training, uh, getting those kind of missions because on the border, because DEA paid for everything. They paid for the C5A, they paid for the helicopter fuel. We had, we probably, we almost burned out our barrels. So we had so much ammo, you know, 
we practice for hours until we get sick of, you know, movement to contact and you know, those kind of things, you know, um, we, uh, also took some of that money and used it to buy some, um, Harris gear that the active duty guys didn't have. And, uh, the latest, you know, Harris gear and stuff like that. So, uh, I remember one funny story. We, we were set up near some water and a little three man element. We're taking turns and I'm, I'm, I'm asleep. And, 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 and John is, John is watching the water and looking out and stuff like that. All of a sudden it's like, Hey man, dude, look at this. And, and then I, I wake up the captain and we're all like, Oh, look at those ladies. Oh, you know, that was all we saw the whole time is we saw some really pretty ladies in the water. Uh, some of the guys got, you know, poison oak, but it was really for realistic training. It really worked, right? Because there was, we had people that when we went into the woods that, that weren't, weren't uh, confident enough to carry around in the chamber with the rifle on safe, for example. And, and I'm like, excuse me, we, we need, you know, I, it was a different team, but I'm like, you, are you sure you guys don't want to practice for war here? You know, it's like right. you want to practice the way you want to go. Right. right. Um, but uh, all in all, it was, it was really good training. We did a couple of those. Um, one of the interesting things was that they didn't want us to do anything in our own home state. As parents, there's enough to worry about and plenty to figure out alone. So isn't it nice to find answers to worry less with people who get it? Saving for college is a journey made better when guided by experience. At collegewell.com, we have expert guidance to get you on the right path. From financial planners to financial aid advisors at colleges nationwide. Visit collegewell.com. We're changing the way families feel about and approach college savings. Showing your good side has many rewards. Become a donor at Griffles Plasma and your plasma can make life-saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma and how it helps people at GrifflesPlasma.com. So they didn't want us to do anything in Florida. Um, you know, it's like we'd go to Oklahoma, California, somewhere else. But they're not, they're not going to let the Oklahoma National Guard originally do these kind of missions uh, in their own home state for fear of getting targeted and stuff like that. Right. Um, now, were you guys I mean, reserve or guard at this point in time? Had they made the switch yet? Well, yeah. 11th had not been absorbed into the uh, to the 20th. And, right. And um, 12th hadn't been absorbed into the 19th, 19th yet. Yeah. 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 So there was they were still there. Um, but no, 20th was always a guard group. Yeah. Um, so then what were some of the ops that, uh, like you were down in Columbia, for instance, what, this was, was this around the same time that like snow cap was kicking off and, and some of those big operations? Yeah. So, um, and I'll mention a snow cap story in a minute, but, um, yeah. So we, uh, in support of, uh, seventh, Right. Uh, we would go down to uh, Tolomati to like the Lancero School, the Colombian Ranger School. So we fly in uh, in three man pods in different commercial flights. We, we get up to the embassy. They stuff us around Bogota and different houses and stuff like that. 
and uh, we listened to automatic gunfire at night and go, you know, hey, we're really in it now. Um, and then we would fly down to Tolomati. And at the, uh, so seventh group would predominantly was focused on training the officers. They're at the Lancero school. So uh, they're all sterile, you know, cause they don't, they don't want the officers to know that it's an E7 train teaching them, teaching right. them the class, that kind of thing like that. And we ended up uh, several times doing like a, um, uh, in Ranger school, um, there's a pre-class, um, what do you guys call that in Ranger? Pre-Ranger. Yeah. Oh, yeah. pre-Ranger school for pre-Ranger. Got it. <laughs> and so we, we taught groups that were uh, forming up, getting ready to go into the Lancero training to see if they could make it through that class. I know, uh, Jackie mentioned a friend had done that before. That class, that class was the real deal. And the Colombians did not have the safety Yes, <laughs> entities you might find in a, in a U.S. school. It was uh, he's been on the show before, Jim West uh, of ah. Seventh Group. Uh, Jim uh, Smokey went to Lancero, and he has some he has some pretty hair raising stories about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, uh, for example, the last time I was down there with the team, um, they had just gotten a whole bunch of brand new. Um, skydiving rigs not what i would consider you know they weren't like strong military freefall rigs or anything like that they got a bunch of skydiving rigs they got all this gear and uh brand new altimeters and and a system to 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 make sure the altimeters are working and stuff and no training and the manuals are in english and stuff like that and i'm like uh talking talking to head instructors and and, and i talked you remember, you remember uh, we used to have those books, uh, those uh, cassette tapes called Head Start? Yeah. So, yeah, and it was like how to learn Spanish and yeah. Head oh, Start. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Dave remembers that. Anyway, they used to call me uh, uh, Sargento Primera Head Start. You know, like I was, that's, that's about as much Spanish as I could talk. But I knew how to work all this gear from Strong and all the parachute manufacturers. So I literally started training a training class while the rest of the team is doing sort of, you know, uh, commo, basic medical, movement to contact, all that kind of stuff. I started this little training, payload training regimen, just trying to make sure that they could be safe with this new gear um, and make sure that like when they stowed the, the pilot chute that they weren't putting in underneath the, you know, the leg strap and things like that, things that'll kill you, you know, in a, in a skydiving and halo environment and um so that's going along really well and unbeknownst to me the seventh group guys had done a halo night jump and one of the guys the seventh group guys didn't make it back because they had jumped out over the water and were coming in or something like that and there was a there was a countrywide stop on halo jumping i have no clue about this thing so they talked me into going up with their Black Falcons, their demo team, because uh, the Secretary of Defense of Columbia is going to be there and blah, 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 and the seventh group colonel and all this stuff. And we do this parachute jump. I land, and they come over, and they're high-fiving me, and the colonel's seeing me, and, and I'm talking English, and I switched to, to really bad Spanish and started to run off, but he caught me. And uh, that was another one of those Steve moments that uh, 
the 20th group commander, the battalion commander, the company commander, you know, my team commander, they all got to, you know, experience the Steveism of, uh, you know, of, uh, not being in, uh, coots, but, uh, uh, that, that training down there, um, that training, um, the training in Panama, once again, really good training because much more live, you know, uh, you know, in the, in the reserve and the, in the guard, so much, especially back after Vietnam into the eighties, uh-huh. you know, eight, you're lucky if you get to go away to a school uh-huh. and, uh, you know, or you're just, you know, spending two weeks up at camp, something, you know, in the state. Right. Um, and so that training was really important. We, um, in Panama, uh, it was the first time I got to work with the CCT and see the other guys that carried a lot of batteries back in the day, right? right? right. Their, their lamps, right? They weren't digital. They were just big lamps. And uh, I remember um, we, we had, a, um, I had a Halo team, but not a, you know, only had six of us that were Halo qualified. And so uh, they decided that we're just going to Halo everybody, and it's too much trouble to take the rest of, you know, six of the guys up to 10, 10 grand and let them jump. And so we do this um, uh, surveillance mission, and then we're supposed to fall back to the runway, you know, protect the CCT guys as they set up the the lights, and then a ranger company is going to jump in. Well, this one young guy, I guess he decided he was just stronger and more manly than the, you know, 98-degree temperature and the 97% humidity and he just fell out. And this guy, I was told by his mates that he didn't have a vein on a normal day, much less down there. And now he's super dehydrated and things like that. So the way I got him up and walking, as I said, I'm not going to try and stick a bunch of holes in you. I'm not doing it a juggler. So I'm going to take this and you're going to drop trowel and it's going to go uh, and and you'll hydrate that way. Wait, but, it's going to go you know, where? I, we missed that part. <laughs> right up the poop chute, up the key Exactly, exactly. And you never saw you never saw an airman get up and march on out uh, like he was okay. Uh, we eventually got a stick in him, but uh, yeah, that I I thought we might I thought we might lose him at one point. He was being stubborn. He was being. Disoriented, you know, he's disoriented and things like that. Was he a CCT guy or an SF guy yeah. or a Ranger? No, CCT. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, I, I expected if there'd been any Rangers, they'd just be drinking out of the swamp water. You know, who cares? You know, uh, yeah. but, uh, yeah. So, um, that kind of, that kind of training was, was, was good. Um, it was focused. Um, we got to, we got to do a, a wet well. Um, uh, God, a wet well big helicopter um, with our with our RB fifteen and a Chinook. Thank you. Sorry, having a brain cramp. Uh, Chinook. Um, so all in all, good good training. Um, a little sometimes unfocused in the guard. I mean, um, you know, because you take what you can get. Um, but that's really why I liked. I mean, working at CENTCOM, so common, having that access, even with my contractor badge, it was, um, you know, they knew who I was and 
I was with the 20th and stuff like that. And so I could go talk to people so. and, and make things happen for your team and, and whatnot. Exactly. What, yeah. What was the, uh, what was the crossover? You said you had a story about snowcap. Oh yeah. So, um, my weapon sergeant, his brother, who was a ranger, was Snowcap. His name, uh, DEA agent named Jay Seal. And so he was in the Casa aircraft when it went down in Peru. Uh, there were a couple other Snowcap agents on there, and there was a young lady from like Arlington, Virginia there. She was like the first Snowcap agent. Wow. And, uh, the seventeen went in to get went in to get them, and uh, yeah. So they, you know, they they think it was just an accident of flying. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't foul play or anything like that. But that was that was tough because Jay Jay was such a great guy, um, and and his brother too, um, and uh, he and his he and the brother and I still talk today. He he's met, he's one of my beta readers for my novels and stuff like that. Great guy. But, uh, yeah, we had a, we had a pretty good team. Um, uh, actually I think about eight of the guys on the team had gone through Ranger school or been in Ranger bat. Um, you know, my heavy weapons guy, Mongo, Mike, <laughs> he was, he was that classic big beast of a guy that could make a, you know, M60 look tiny. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so we had some, we had some great people. And, one, uh, one of these pictures you sent me said it's right before a counter drug op in Columbia and you guys are all kitted out wearing face paint in front of the Huey. It looks like almost from Vietnam. Yeah, very much so with our A, A, uh, A2 long <laughs> plastic, plastic rifles and stuff. That was actually the counter drug mission into, uh, into Los Padres, um, Oh, okay. I think that I think that picture was not the not a not a Columbia mission, but um, yeah, we uh, they didn't, you know, they have having the guard guys down there and some of the things the guard guys had done. So, um, in the twentieth group, I retired out of in Maryland. We had this warrant officer. He was John was the kind of guy that if you said don't do this, John immediately went and did it. So, so uh, the teams in, in El Salvador and John decides to go see what it's like in Nicaragua, right? In, in, and not in the years that it's a friendly, friendly crossing, you know, and waving, crossing the border and stuff like that. So um, we had a little bit of a reputation, I think, um, during the 80s and, and early 90s. And I think really, um, certainly um, our, our adjutant general and the Maryland Guard, he became the three star in charge of NGB and uh, we had a million dollar budget for stuff. So we had really, not only did we have the, the 19th group in West Virginia, right out at the, out at the training site for the boys, you know, the selection site, and they would bring us tractor trailers full of halo rigs. But so, so the AGs let us use his, his uh, Sherpa, his Huey to jump and maintain efficiency and things like that. And then we had these, we had SATCOM radios and crypto gear before active duty guys because we had this budget. And right. Well, the and, general wanted to spend it. And, and, and I think to explain this to people who might not be aware, before the war on terror, there was the war on drugs. And so all the money that goes to the war on terror now 
at that time, all the money was going to the war on drugs. Like, it was the big thing, the war on drugs. And the National Guard, special forces in the National Guard, walked this very fine line where because they were under state authority, didn't really, uh, I guess they weren't really subject to posse comitatus or whatever it is that keeps federal, like, you can't bring troops in, but you can bring the National Guard in to do these counter-drug operations in these places. So, well, no, no, we still had posse comitatus. We oh, still get the seventh group. Jag would give us the, oh, the really? spiel. Yeah, but because because you guys aren't federalized, uh, you can they can call you in. I mean, not to, not yes. just war on drugs, but I mean uh, civil disturbances, natural disasters. No, like, you're exactly right. Yeah, they, they have national guard guys do like infrastructure security I, at ports and things. Yeah, to the state. and the national oh, yeah. yeah, and the national guard guys were doing a lot of the counter drug stuff that the act in stateside. And stuff mm-hmm. that the active duty guys could not. Right, 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 and and, and supporting Epic and, and stuff like that. Right, yeah. So absolutely, and um, it's interesting after the, you know, of course after nine eleven and, and and the changes that happened, what we saw too was that the commanders, the the ground commanders in Afghanistan, of course, you know, after a couple of days in Afghanistan, we've got to invade Iraq, so we got a whole another focus point right we're going to turn things over to nato but there was that whole gap where you know commanders are telling the sec def and the president you know all this afghan opium is not my job my job's counterterrorism, right and so this is actually you know a, a very interesting uh the transition between um the war on drugs and the GWAT. there's also you get a lot of contractors helping out, right? So a lot of my SAIC friends were doing a lot of human and gathering data and doing things like we're, we're in, right? Because when first, like the first Gulf War, when we went there, we didn't have satellites overhead. We're using old British and Russian maps. You know, we had, we had to learn the area, right? And during the GWAT, same thing. There were contractors doing a lot of that support, even from stateside, you know, supporting the teams forward. But one of the interesting things for me was was that gap between what DEAs and special mission units and, mm-hmm. and different people are trying to do in Afghanistan, which unfortunately for me sort of replicated the work that the things that didn't really work in Vietnam. Right. Um, you know, some, some of those, Hey, grow oranges once right. a year you know, right. versus, versus two crops of opium, you right. know, things like that, you know, the same stuff that we tried in Colombia, right. Yeah. You know, we just keep trying it. It's going to work somewhere. Right. But, uh, yeah. So that's an interesting uh, topic for me because actually in my third book that I'm writing now, that's that's one of my focuses. It's 2003, and and you've got that disparity and how do you fit in there, right? There was that big operation. Uh, I remember uh, the war started, and uh, I think Tony Blair, he sends the SAS over, and they got nothing for him to do, right? <laughs> so they go home, and then they they they. They, they, they find a processing plant. It's like, let's go. And literally, I don't know how many people know this story. I can't remember the name of the op, but they, the SAS actually lands eight, eight C-130s worth of guys in their pink, in their pink, you know, Jeeps and, uh, excuse me, in their Land Rovers and the Rovers and stuff. And they assault this uh, opium processing plant and stuff like that. And so it's a very interesting that the war on drugs we keep fighting, we keep pushing, and the global, you know, they're, they're estimating by 
2030 that Afghanistan will account for, what is that, 12,600,000 pounds of opium, right? It's just crazy that, uh, you know, we, we, we have focused, rightly so, on counterterrorism. But in the meantime, taking our eye off the ball, right, the, the, the war on drugs, I mean, you know, in, in 2012, I can remember the, uh, we had this, uh, not a town hall, but a meeting up in D.C., and uh, the SOCOM CIO and some other people are talking about what's going on, and it's like drug smuggling is worth $147 billion in 2012, right, as compared to human trafficking at $32 billion, you know, which is very gruesome, and I'm not trying to downplay human trafficking, but can you imagine the growth? Because now we've got more people using heroin, you're going back to using heroin, and a whole new group of people with more money using heroin, and we've got meth, and now we've got these synthetics, and the fentanyl thing, it's just nuts. Anyway, yeah, it talks of interest for me, for sure. So well, I think that, I think one of the challenges is, is the whole terminology, because now the war on drugs and the war on terror narco competing with the war on christmas and the war on you know poverty and the war on you know what i mean it's like it's uh everybody uses this hyperbolic language in order to you know to couch their what's important to them understandably but then it all just gets lost in the mix but yeah but the war on drugs or the the counter drug effort as it were it, it it's it's been it's been forgotten, and we've talked about this on the show before. Where guys who were in seventh group who used to have it was the heyday during the war on drugs, and then the war on terror, and all of a sudden seventh group who are focused in Latin America, where do they want to go? You know, because where's all the money going, right? Um, not the guys themselves; they want to go to war, but I mean the commands in general. You know, sure. they they all want to couch it in a way that they're part of. There's global war on terror because all the money's being funneled to. That's the funding line, right? Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. So, Steve, before we, we move on to the next part of your career, uh, again, any spicy stories about Central South America that uh, that you want to lay on us? Um, actually, more about more about Florida, okay. uh, right? As the as the receiving end um, of of. Uh, a lot of what goes on, right? That's I mean, good. thank you. Back when I was active in this, we, we really didn't have the idea of the semi-submersibles, right? Uh, the submarine semi-submersibles. We had fast movers, right? We had aircraft of all kinds and stuff like that. And, and um, the uh, we were uh, doing some cross-training with SAS guys south of the Okefenokee, and there was a general, believe it or not, his name was General Peanut, and he owned like 10,000 acres of swamp down there. So great training area. We took the SAS, we had half the company went to Britain to do training with the SAS uh, reservists, the 23rd, 21st and 23rd TA, their reserve guys. And um, some of these SAS guys came to America, and we took them to the uh, – uh, the Air Force School, the uh, Water Survival School at Turkey Point at the power, at the nuclear power plant, and uh, so we 
teach them all about poisonous things in the water and hammerhead sharks and in in homestead bay and all this and we jump and have a good time so we go down into uh the swamp and uh we're doing different missions and stuff like that and and uh just one funny side story not real spicy but we're going to cross this canal so we're making our you know wrapping up our, our rocks and making stuff float and i start to go out in the water and all of a sudden i'm like pulled back and i hear this whisper look at that look at that and there's these eyes out in the water <laughs> right and but they're only like this far apart i mean it's just not i'm like yeah dude that nah, that's a little one don't worry about it don't worry about it so we start swimming across and then it shows up on the other side like this and those SAS guys push me along. I think I had a bow wave. Uh, they pushed me <laughs> out of the water as we going along. So a couple days later, uh, you know, I'm trying to make sure stuff's staying dry. I mean, my, my like one-time pad's like rotting away. It's wet and stuff like that. And I'm trying to make camo. And uh, it's night. And we have no night vision or anything like that. And it's just dark as hell. And I hear this airplane, but I don't see any lights. And I'm like, and all of a sudden, boom, 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 bales. It turned out to be bales that were tossed out of the aircraft that were, I don't know, 150 feet away or whatever. But this this Cherokee or whatever it was flew by and tossed some stuff out of the airplane. And I'm like, you got to be lost to toss it out where we are. So that was that was a little interesting. But so uh, you guys were out there smoking marijuana in the uh, in the well, PB that night. We had to test. You know, you have to enforce light discipline, right? Right. And you have to. You don't know if it's marijuana, unless right? You you, unless it, right? you know, right? You have to test it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> same thing in cups. Same, the same thing down in Miami. It's like, you know, and, and when you see a key of cocaine, you don't know it's cocaine until you stick your finger in it. Right. You Is it coke or powdered sugar? Who knows? Yeah. 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 yeah, we, yeah I thought. I, yeah, I thought it was for the donuts. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, we would do just sometimes in, in uh, when we had nothing to do. Some of our guys were PD, and we do ride-alongs with them and. That could that could get spicy in the Miami oh, yeah. south part of the areas there. There were some particularly hardcore parts of, of uh, Miami and stuff like that. I remember a funny story. The uh, Florida Guard, our former company commander, uh, Major Stanley, he went off. He went to Fort Huachuca, and he came back an intel weenie lieutenant colonel. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I got this new job. I'm supposed to stand up a... Uh, a counter-intel linguist battalion there in Miami. I'm like, where are you going to get people to staff this? And he's like, well, a bunch of the E7s are coming over to get E8 positions and things like that, you know, the normal movement around the garden, stuff like that. And I said, yeah, but all your language speakers, aren't they like first or second generation Cubans? How are we going to clear these people? He's like, I don't know, but by the way, you're my you're my intel sergeant. So for about 18 months, I was his intel sergeant, trying to do paperwork and get first generation Cubans a clearance. And it was, I'm sorry, but impossible. <laughs> no, had a great time. No. We, we had a lot. We did a lot of partery, partery, part. Yeah, we had a lot of parties, but we didn't clear a lot of people. Yeah, I bet. You know, it's funny because I had a buddy who had been a, a SEAL and then uh, my or he'd been Miami Dade SWAT and. 
They're they're like you don't hear anything about them, but they're a a top notch SWAT team with oh yeah with very I don't want to say loose rules of engagement, but 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 they're law enforcement. They play hard. Like, they play no. hard. Like they're like they Las play. Vegas law enforcement. Like they're there to maintain the peace regardless. Right, right, and that was uh, that was some of the more interesting things we would do. Um, those guys, um, you know, it's funny because they're always in so buff and in shape and things like that. And, uh, then, you know, and we're sort of joking. And then when we saw how they could shoot, move and communicate, they were tight, yeah, really tight. And yeah. they still do really well. Uh, you know, in some of the, um, uh, SWAT competitions they have there in Florida, I've got a friend who was, who was a, a D boy and, and then a contractor acquisition guy went after major got stuffed into acquisition and, and, uh, yeah, he he's a, invited me to a couple of those competitions just to watch, and it's it's pretty impressive um, what what some of those those guys can do. Um, that is, you know, people might joke around and things like that, but some of those teams, some of those some of those gangs like L.A. Kings and MS Thirteen and stuff, they 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 got some no kidding kind of almost. Not not Sinaloa level, you know, kind of bad bad guys, but yeah, tough tough yeah, stuff. And, and they're not they're not just this motley crew either. Like they're organized, they're trained. A lot of them, like like they know what they're doing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just a, a, a you know you're you're on the duty. You got a long gun today. You're on the duty, right? It's just not a pickup team, right? Well, I didn't mean Miami Dade. I meant like the LA uh, or not the LA Kings, but I meant like the gangs down there. Like, they're not just, yeah. you think of gangs, you think of, you know, a bunch of, like, street thugs with, like, no... Uh, oh, no, very militaristic, like like you see in Sinaloa and a lot of the, the Mexican cartels, literally plucked right out. How would you like to make five times more than you are in the Army? You know, SF, Mexican SF and Marines and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. People are bad, bad, bad people. When they're, when they're shooting helicopters out of the sky and, and stuff like that. Right. And, and all of a sudden they show up to the party with an Igla and a missile. It's like, okay, this is real. Steve, can you get that story on us that you were telling me a little bit about before that, uh, during the Gulf war and you were doing something at the SAIC at the time. Yeah. So right before the Gulf war kicked off, um, there was a, uh, the Baltic Maritime Council decided to uh, put out this contract. The shipping industry in 1989, to my surprise, was doing its contracts and most of its work over teletype still. And, the, and at the end of the teletype, there's this three-digit code that equals your teletype. It's like a, a physical code of, you know, like the, the MAC address of your, your, your teletype. And they would do contracts. I've got, you know, 10 tons of bulk ore and you've got the freighter and we're doing a deal. And so um, we, we uh, won this contract to help bring them into the so-called digital age. And um, so I went over and I was working out of the Baltic Exchange, which is the old exchange before they built Lloyd's uh, to do the, you know, like, like the Chicago Exchange and stuff like that. And so we're working out of the basement there and we're figuring out how to build this worldwide network using IBM and DEC and their different networks to make these connections. 
So I'm traveling all over the place, Stockholm, Oslo, uh, back to New York, uh, Japan, Tokyo. Um, and the most interesting place that I went, and that's that picture that you put up on the, on the site there. Uh, that picture is myself and an Air Force intelligence officer. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago out there in front of Red Square. And part of BIMCOM was uh, SOCOM, I think it was called SOCOM Fleet at the time, and SOCOM FRAC. Well, SOCOM, or so, I think it's shortened its name down to SOFRAC now. Um, it is the Russian shipping conglomerate. And they also do ground logistics and things like that. They've been, <laughs> I don't know how many times they've been sanctioned by different administrations for sending stuff to Iran and, you know, breaking sanctions and things like that. And uh, the idea was like, and, and uh, out of, uh, also out of Greece. So one of the big backers of this idea was a, a Greek tycoon called George Lobanos. And he owned the majority of the world's oil tankers. And I didn't, this is another thing I didn't know as I got into this business is they protected the, the, the whereabouts of the oil tankers very vigorously, right? Um, because, you know, somebody might, you could affect, you know, the trade and the value and things like that if people got to the port before you, right? Um, and, and this was pre-GPS pre days, so, so there wasn't this automatic tracking. There was more of a like a beacon that used Loran and things like that. So we started putting this system together and stuff. And then I get a call with a from a three-letter agency when they're very interested in this. You're going to rush. I mean, they they know everything about what I'm going to do. I'm like, you know, oh geez, who's listening? You know, and uh, we're very interested in what you're going to do while you're in Russia, right? You're going to be in Riga, the port city in Latvia. You're going to be in Moscow and such like that. And so I'm all teched up. I'm all psyched up. I'm going to do something a little spooky, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't have no idea what they're going to do over and around and on top of me. But, you know, I'm going to go do this work. And we get there. And it is like, <laughs> sort of like when I got into SF and had the wind-up toy to make my burst transmission i get there and it's i can't even get a modem to work the lines are so bad i can't and i'm talking about you know the kind of modem where you have to you can hear the individual tones go right you know like like 9.6 kind of modem and stuff yeah. you know you know and then it you, goes would you like to play a game right <laughs> or your your porn screen sort of right, load right. like this for two right? hours like, <laughs> line by line you're like, get out of here. No, I'm done. I'm done. Anyway, um, we go to this work and, and uh, before I before I got in there, I heard the conditions were so bad that I actually took a kit bag, an aviator kit bag, and I filled it with with like dance cams and beans and other things. Not to trade, but just give to people who would help me out, right? So like Dollar bills, uh, lucky strikes were huge, right? A carton, uh, you get anything for, you know, you get a taxi ride anywhere around Moscow for two hours for a pack of lucky strikes kind of idea. Um, so we start doing this work, and I got like seven minders around me and watching what I'm doing. They put me in one of the old Olympic hotels, you know, and I'm, I'm joking around going, I could really use some ice, you know, just waiting for the ice to show up kind of idea. Uh, my boss and his boss, 
our bosses came. He came, and they were in Dzerzinski Square at, at uh, the Savoy, right? More bugs per square inch in the Savoy than, than an NSA guy could ever count. But uh, so it was an interesting time. I got a connection for a little bit. It didn't work. And then we just had to leave at, at, at one point. And uh, I debriefed the guys and said, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's working or not. You know, we'll see. I'm probably going to end up going back. Well, about the time we're going to go back and, and do some more work and, and clean this up, Saddam invades Kuwait. And uh, I had left CENTCOM to go do this piece of work. And I'm getting the call to come back to CENTCOM. And there, I'm like, no, 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 I'm having a lot of fun. I want to stay here in the UK for another couple of years, mess around Europe. And they're like, no, 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 you can you can come back of your own free will, or we can send a marshal to come get your right, ass. Right. Nope. We'll, we'll we'll put you on we'll put you on orders, and then you know life will be terrible. So I ended up coming back, but uh, the uh, we were in Riga. And it was like a week. Later, you know, tanks are rumbling around the, the square in Riga. And, you know, not too long after that, Derzinski's getting torn down in the middle of the square. And it, it was an exciting time to be there. Um, if it wasn't for Saddam, I could have probably stayed and been even, even uh, you know, more in the middle of the action. Because that was very, very interesting to me what was going on, you know, at that time. Right. Wait, so they told you to come back to CENTCOM for the first Gulf War. Did you make? Yeah. Did you manage to book a flight and get back to CENTCOM before the war was over? Oh yeah, but then then I got the suck job running the networks in the back. <laughs> I'm like, come on, you guys, just just let me come forward, you know, for a month, you know, get my tab, get my patch, whatever, you right, know. Right, right, right. I, I had a I had a young captain friend that I used to work out with at SOCOM. He goes forward, and the next thing I know. I see him on the damn TV making entry into the embassy. He's got, he's a helicopter pilot. He's got, and he, he's holding, he's holding a, 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 a Carl Gustav and making like a bad guy. Like he's going to go in the embassy and do something. I know it was all photo shoot, but I was, anyway, I was pissed off. But. Nice. <laughs> Number one man with a Carl Gustav. <laughs> Pray and pray, you know. Just send him in the well, yeah. I mean, you really don't have to pray if you're gonna. I mean, pray for yourself if you fire a Carl <laughs> Gustav in a building you're entering. But uh, so, yeah. for those of you who don't know, Carl Gustav is like a. I don't, the millimeter. It, it would it would have been the ninety, uh, yeah. the ninety millimeter. Back ninety millimeter recoilless rifle. Oh no, which, no 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 no. Uh, when I say Carl, I'm sorry. You know what the you know the um, maybe I'm using the wrong term. There was a. There was a sweet oh Swedish K the nine millimeter the submachine gun. All right, okay, machine gun. Not okay. Carl Gustav. Sorry, I'm thinking. Sorry. I just I realized going with a shoulder fire <laughs> recoilless like rifle. He's playing, uh, yeah, like he's playing Call of Duty yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It was a Swedish K. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so any any other before you were I, I imagine you were getting towards like the tail end of your military career at this point are there any other highlights you think we should hit up before we move into you know your your kind of post military service um, no like when I was down at Centcom you know the secret service guys came down and that I all knew when when the queen knighted knighted uh you know uh, General Schwarzkopf, you know, that kind of thing. I got to catch up with a bunch of guys and stuff like that. I had a fun time. 
But yeah, by that time, I'd really switched over into uh, cybersecurity and and the business of of what we call these cross-domain systems that allow you to share data, uh, you know, either access data or move it across classified networks. So I'd really, I'd really sort of switched into that mode at that point. Um, but uh, yeah. How how did because you really started out in hardware, um, and then when things went when things sort of went digital, I mean because cybersecurity a lot of what you're talking about is a lot of software. Did, was was that all self taught then? Did you go from the hardware to the software sort of on your well, own? Yeah, well, like I took a Fortran class along the Beltway, you know, uh, stuff like that. But I was never really a programmer. I picked up on the networking as. We started to get PCs, and and, and this is—I'm looking at you guys thinking this is a long time ago. No, no, no. I, is, uh, I had a Commodore 64. Like I'm. I oh, mean, great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. you remember? You remember in the military the 186, the 286, and eventually with 386 we got the Pentium chips and things like that. So um, yeah, I was never really. I, I never really knew enough to like load software, do things, but I was really interested in the networks and communications. And so that's, you know, early, early um, um, networks. I remember when I got to CENTCOM, we had this big, thick RG58 cable, looked like the kind of cable you would send out to your big antenna. And you had to drill a hole into it and put this thing called a vampire clamp on it to make the network connection. And I was... When I, I, I built this worldwide military command and control system computer in a shelter that we could take overseas, I, I wrote that out on yellow legal pad, and our lady used a word processor as their word processor to put it on a big eight-inch floppy. You know, oh, wow. It was, just, it was really, really um, old technology. So I got to see the commands, the military, not only on the, the, the communication side, but in the networking IT side, see that growth and see how eventually the intelligence systems like, you know, the, the massive systems that are doing all that collection of that, the signals intelligence finally are integrated into the network and we can start to, you know, move off the paper and, and get digital, things like that. So I've been very lucky with that. So, Steve, actually, there's something we've talked about sort of hypothetically with with uh, I can't remember who it was we spoke about it with, but none of us were a technical expert in this field. So we were talking about like emergent technologies and how, especially with the military, sometimes falling behind, you know, in, in like from what you can buy on the shelf, that things like Blue Force trackers, things like if we ever start using um, – like uh, not virtual reality, but more like ultra reality for headsets and things like that for the for combat. How how those might be vulnerable? Um, like we don't even think that a blue force tracker, right? Something to help us just you know, a you know friend or foe type of system. Don't shoot my don't, don't shoot, shoot my shoot buddy me. on the left and right. Right, um, but how those could be turned against us because they're not necessarily created. You know, they're not put forth to like bug bounty programs to say, hey, hack this system and see what you can find. Yeah, oftentimes those kind of systems, they're just literally have an overlay of encryption so that we encrypt those links, you know, hoping nobody can break those links, right? Because the the core security elements of what's needed inside the software are really not 
as, as deep and broad as you might think, right? So there are those kind of things, like edges, like the solar winds, right. you know, kind right. of thing, right? Um, the kind of system that I make actually goes through six to nine months of NSA testing because we sit between, right, we, we, we might be, we could be seen as a gateway between the unclassed Nipper network and the Sipper secret network. And so movement of that data, all that un, uh, open source data up and then information back down is important uh, from top secret to secret for the warfighter and all that intel summaries, whatever it might be, targeting. So, so we get tested very rigorously and then even around us, the systems are built very uh, to very NSA specific requirements and focused requirements to ensure their security efficacy. We are 100% paranoid about, can somebody take over my system, right? right. Can somebody find this back door, a, 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 a computing mistake, a, a coding mistake, and make that change or, you know, then start hopping themselves around and collect right. data. Right. Uh, I, I have friends that are CIOs at, you know, Raytheon, Lockheed, and other places. They, they It used to be that we had firewalls and all this perimeter defense and we've proven that's worthless right uh kids kids but also the nation states of course right. russians russian sponsored chinese sponsored you know apts things yeah. like that the uh, the so advanced they, persistent threats the apts exactly right? yeah right. exactly and that is one that lives in your system and then just quietly goes around and starts pulling it apart and looking for interesting things but it's got a beacon home so what a lot of those uh experts are starting to look at is if I can stop the beaconing home, your APT doesn't hurt me. If it's in the system and I don't find you right away, it's okay as long as you can't call home. So now you're starting to see a resurgence of actually hardware devices called diodes. And a diode is a one-way transfer that goes through a light, you know, a fiber optic transfer. So the data can only go one way and they're proven they work. They don't know what's going through. It could be very bad stuff that might dump your system or cause a, you know, a uh, denial of service, but nothing's going out. So we're seeing the military start to employ those more because even though it's just a modicum of security, it's like, hey, if the bad guy can't beacon home, he can't send all that information out of uh, solar winds back to me and my control systems that I have all over the place, you know? Right. Because as a hacker nowadays, I can make use of thousands of computers to give me power, right? Right. There was a huge uh, denial of service outage um, last year or the year before where the, the bad guys used the processing power out of video cameras and used that process. And they essentially created a distributed monster mainframe, you know, like Cray mainframe, and used all that processing power to stop computing in a, you know, in this, across the space. So it is, there, there's, there's a lot of different viewpoints and vectors on what, on cybersecurity and what's the right thing to do. And it really has been, always has been, and continues to be a layered defense game, right? Yeah. Right. I have kind of a tech question as well. Uh, I've been having some conversations with uh, some folks this week for a story I've been working on. And uh, one of the issues that came up was that the Department of Defense is now using private commercially owned server farms for cloud computing. And the question being, 
are these server farms now legitimate military targets for foreign nations if they're hosting U.S. military data? And if those server farms are civilian, does the people who live in the nursing homes and the schools next door realize that this is a this is a beacon for cruise missiles or, or whatever other sort of attack? I was wondering if you think what you think about that, like both practically, but also I guess theoretically, um, since it hasn't happened yet. Well, one of the things that that uh, having started life in physical security, right, in the Secret Service and things like that, um, one of the things that really disturbs me is how many big data centers that corporations and the defense, you know, industrial base and the government relies on, and they're in the flight path of Dulles Airport. Meaning that somebody loses an engine, you know, somebody has a flame out, and the next thing you know, there's a big fur in the ground through three data centers, right? Mm-hmm. And some of these data centers, like, like at Equinex, is actually a data center where they provide all the communications, but you put your stuff in a cage and you manage your own stuff. Other ones are, you know, Google, the standards, Google, IBM, uh, Oracle, Azure, Microsoft, AWS, those kind of things. And so I know for sure, because uh, I've seen the security reports and things like that, that there are regions that they build to work with the government. They're fully isolated. They're built on their, their principles, but they're not connected to the regular internet, to the commercial regions and things like that. They're, they're fully segregated. But there are, there are very well-known places, um, you know, X miles south of uh, D.C., you know, where, where, you know, you could just do a Google search and see that the FBI has got a lot of stuff in this data center, right? Mm-hmm. Or somebody else has it in another data center uh, that supports the I.C., so, yeah, there's, there's, there's still the physical aspect of the issue there. And then, yeah, targets, right? The more there'll always be a need for tactical systems in your tactical data set that you take forward with you. And, I'm, I don't, you know, the, the cloud service providers are trying to provide these capabilities to say, here's, here's this package, and you can consider it. It operates the same way as your cloud that you buy from us and a service you buy from us, but you could take it forward tactical. But um, these the the use of uh, these systems to consolidate data to, to reduce my cost. I don't have to uh, with Azure Virtual Desktop. I don't have to have uh, Booz Allen or Lockheed Martin set up this big environment so I can have these desktops all over my command. I just buy it and it's right there, but that means it's just right there. And if it's not reliable and, and spread and distributed, huge target, huge right. target. Jim. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and they can say, you know, the, they can say that everything's compartmentalized, but they've shown that even a virtual machine can be breached, right? That, that, that you can find that, that a skilled person can find their way out of a virtual machine into the actual Oh, yeah. Yeah, we use the term tech, uh, containers now, right? right. The containers. Containers is just a neat way to have some, some business logic and in, in, a, in, a, in a container that communicates a certain way, right? And there are different companies that do that. But you're right. I mean, we have, bar none, I believe, we did, we did with NSA and now with Cybercom and now with the, 
the, the cybercom support units that are out in in the the states in the National Guard. We have sc scary good people that as much work as I put into my systems, you know, they they anyway, they're they're really, really good. And yeah. uh, if if we can do it then then you know that the Chinese are, are focused on that, right? The Russians with all their mathematicians, phys physics people that that look for, for ways to do this, right? We've seen the Israelis are brilliant at somehow hopping, right, into, uh, from the air gap into systems and yeah. things like that. So, Well, yeah, I mean, they're, I, I, they're able to hack. I, I read something. They're able to hack computers by, by heat signatures, by, 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 like, at a distance. Not, and, not, and not through the Internet, but at a distance from the computer, right? I, so... Yeah, one of the one of the easy ways to think about it is every computer has an electrical connection. We are actually doing networking over our own electrical grid system. So what's to say that we can't use the electrical system to, you know, see what's going on and some things that are rotating in, uh, you know, in 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 Iran, right, or things like that. So um, there's a whole space of of security. Um, uh, another part of what I focus on is the insider threat. Right. Uh, and then, you know, so there's people, but there's also a, a series called UEBA. That's uh, user and entity behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. So you've got users that have behaviors and you're in this behavior. You're good. All of a sudden we see Jack at three o'clock, take something off a zipper and try and put it into his, uh, trash can, and then he's copying Into it over my to Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're sneaking it. You're folding up the paper and putting it in your sock. Taking uh, a photo of the screen. Yeah, but no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so you've got that. But entities, right? So now we're very, very interested in is. Wait a minute. Why is this server trying to talk out of the network? Right. The server should. You know, the server, the entity. A non-human thing is trying to do something odd, and and that's that's a real interesting point. You know that uh, that also plays into uh, what has been going on in the military and even down at the unclass. So oftentimes, when data is scraped from top secret and secret, the bad guys will try and exfiltrate it out the unclass network because right. that's really where they have the connections. The, 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 I'll just quickly say that we are now looking at things, right, because of the Navy Yard shooter. You remember the Navy Yard shooter? We find out later, here's all these things in, in, in you know, speeding ticket, this, that, the other thing, you know, that here's these indicators, right? Indicators of, of behavior, right? IOPs that are not, not good. We should have noticed that he was not in a good state. He was mentally ill. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so now there's even how do we bring in those kind of data sets, do it in a way that's legal to bring in those data sets from LexisNexis, other things like that. But yeah, so. Yeah, now, it's it's really fascinating. Do you find that, that people are more willing to embrace this convergence of physical security, human intelligence, cybersecurity, like this, this whole list? Because they, they used to operate on very separate channels right 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 yeah yeah one of the systems that we build for example can take in 
travel data can take in alarm systems or badging data. You know, it's like, wait a minute, Steve's on travel in, in, in Germany. How come he's badged into building four, right? Uh, so we are looking at those kinds of things, a more holistic view of, of you know, certainly what the human element can do. But, right. Uh, Steve, yeah, can, can you tell, talk to us a little bit about, uh, because you are now a novelist, can you tell us about how you got into writing? What inspired you to start writing? And I mean, it sounds like you have a, a real wealth and depth of experience to kind of bring into the fictional realm. Yeah, so uh, in 1993, I'd moved up uh, from CENTCOM and was working DISA, multi-level security office, and uh, get a call one day in October that uh, my parents have been in an accident. They're coming back from Puerto Pinesca, which is like in the crown of Baja, you know, in Mexico. And they would go down there with their fifth wheel trailer and party on the beach and everything's cheap, you know, drugs and uh, pharmaceutical drugs, sorry. <laughs> and then uh, uh, um, they're on their way back and they, uh, um, or they're somehow they're in they're in movement and they get hit and uh, there's an accident and it crushes my wife in the truck my dad's truck and stuff and um, crushes my mother I'm sorry and uh, she ends up in a hospital ends up dying there the federalities right do what they do which is arrest everybody throw everybody in jail and it turns out that the that truck the guys were high. Uh, they had drugs, and uh, that's why the accident, they, they crossed over the, the middle line and, and hit my parents. And my mom died in a, a Mexican hospital. So after that, I thought, you know, I need to, I need to let this go because I'm not in a really good mood. I, I'd like to do an, a mini invasion of my own and, and, you know, get after it with some, some people in Sonora. And uh, so I... I I even put it up on a storyboard like it would be a, a movie or a television show. I And and so this is in 93, 90, so I started doing this in 94, 95. I put it away. I get back to it. I put it away. And then finally, my wife's like, when are you going to write that book? You know, you wanted to do it. You wanted to tell this story, you know, get it out of your system. Why don't you just start doing it? So I start, and I've always been an avid reader. Uh, originally, it was more sci-fi oriented, of course, Dune and, and uh, you know, other sci-fi kind of things. And then I start reading uh, Ludlum and, and, of course, Clancy when it comes out, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, all those kind of things. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to start putting the story down. I really don't know anything about writing. And so a couple of years ago, I just started banging on the computer and putting this down. And, and that was my genesis to start writing. Uh, and, um, you know, there were some spots where um, totally made up for, for some reason it was impactful, you know, and I had to step back and let the writing go for a minute, you know, that kind of thing like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been a fun, fun. I've always liked the idea of telling a story, and so it's been a fun on road can, since then. Can you throw the book cover up on the screen? Because this book is coming out pretty soon, right? Well, it, I, it looks like we're probably going to try for a June uh, update. Whoops. Sorry, my computer just fell down. Oh, we um, thought you fell down. <laughs> <laughs> your, your seat. Exactly. Um, 
but uh, uh, so we'll, we'll get that all figured out. But yeah, there's a cover reveal I can show here. Let me. You're seeing it here first, folks. By the way, yeah. So I'll just say real quickly, um, I'm proud to announce that I'm signed with a, a, a publishing organization started in 2018 called Force Poseidon. Uh, J.T. Patton, who's been on your show before, yep. is one of the people they represent. Uh, K.R. Paul, uh, Eric Bishop, so so uh, Active Duty Air Force, uh, B-52 got us. <laughs> um, you know, just a regular guy on the street, somebody who's been in the Intel community his whole life, J.T. Patton. Uh, so they, they're really focused on giving uh, folks a chance who are not, you know, not able to hit it off with a big publisher, you know. Um, so I'm very lucky that and honored that that uh, they were able to wanted to take me on board here. So let me let me get this thing shared. And the book is called Shadow Tear. Right there, we go. There it is. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and, and that idea is my my protagonist is uh, Lance Bearwolf. He's he's native Crow Indian. He was a he was a ranger. He was a he was a recce guy. He was an ISA guy, SF guy. Just sort of trying to figure out what he wanted to do when he grew up, and now he's a, a contractor. Uh, but uh, he's in uh, he and his parents first time in twelve years. He's gone on vacation with his parents. They're coming back from Puerto Vallarta. They stop at a restaurant. There's a gunfight. They get involved because that's what his stepfather and, and Lance do. And uh, it goes from there. The parents are killed and, and Lance starts a one-man war against the Sinaloa cartel, El Chapo, and his uh, West Coast lieutenants. And uh, so I'm and, excited. And this, uh, is, uh, can, this is intended to be like the first in a series, I take it? Yes. I've, uh, I've uh, got the second book is already with the publisher. The first one's not out. I'm a sort of a writing fool like that. And I'm working on the third one that uh, actually takes place in 2003. So awesome. Yep. It's a three, it's a three book deal and uh, looking forward to do more. If uh, people are interested in reading. And, so. and when do you think uh, the first one is coming out? You got the pre-order page there. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like it, um, June, you know, the okay. discussions, been, let's do it on the army birthday, <laughs> June 14. I'm not sure if we need to do that, but uh some, somewhere in that time frame, yeah. And uh, if you go to my uh, uh, website at stephenstrattonusa.com, uh, you can sign up and I'll send you the th first three chapters of the book to read and, and you can see if you like it. Awesome. And uh, go from there. Yeah, okay. go go uh, pre-order it on Amazon. So actually, it looks like it's out on Kindle right now. It says, it doesn't say pre-order, it just... Yes, uh, it does. It's right there. Oh, pre-order with one click. Okay, there we go. Yeah, Thank you. Uh, I'm going to put the link uh, to the Amazon in the chat. And um, for those of you who are listening. Yeah, we got a couple uh, user questions, too. I'll, I'll hit up real quick for you. For those of you listening, it, yeah, uh, I don't know how to do that. This website's in the description. To give the yeah, link. the website's in the description yeah. so they can find it. Yeah, just look on the – yeah, when you get home, uh, look on the uh, podcast and it's there, right? Yeah, it's there. Okay. Too, they can check it 
All right. So Lassick, uh, I think he's asking about your your time in the White House communication agency. He says, "Did you o- did you ever overhear someone's mistress?" <laughs> uh, no, not not a mistress. Uh, but I did hear the story that the press pool was actually a pool at one time, a real swimming pool that LBJ used to go swim with his uh, one of his secretaries with. So uh, that was one of the one of the White House stories. Um, so. Yeah, you know it's interesting uh, about Secret Service guys that I found, and I mean, is that they will talk like they'll when you're having drinks, they'll talk, but they'll never talk publicly about what they heard or saw. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah, there's I get it, I understand, yeah. but but like I've heard some hilarious stories from Secret Service guys, but they will never go public with them. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a, a thing. Yeah. No, Ian, I get it. Uh, says, who the hell is this guy? I tuned in to see the Manosphere guru, Jack Murphy. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you, Ian. I am the true Jack Murphy. And what I have this article you wrote. I have ascended to my rightful place. It's not my article. It's 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 John Goldman's article. You have to ask him. He's currently unavailable. This is the team house, not the the liminal order or the riminal order or the seminal order or whatever whatever he's calling it now. Uh, so, uh, Steve, I mean, this has been awesome, man. Um, I'd actually, I'd love to have you back sometime to talk about your other books when they come out and some get maybe even deeper into the technology side of things um, that we don't get to talk about so often here. Uh, this has been really cool, man. I, I appreciate you taking some time on your Friday to talk with us. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to be with you guys. I mean, Dave, you know, the uh, we, we could just sit around and talk, you know, acronyms, you know, ODNI and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, yeah, that would be, be a lot of fun. Thank you. I'd and love to do that. So, uh, folks, uh, Steve, actually, first off, can I get you to stand by for just a moment? Um, I'd like to do a bonus segment if we can. And sure. uh, everyone else, we'll see you guys next Friday. We're going to have a uh, former dev group Squadron commander on the show. Our Talk. second seal. Third. Third? Yeah. Jeff, Chuck, and oh, this will right. be number that's three. Right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So uh, we will see you guys next Friday. In the meantime, if you want to uh, join our Patreon, it's down in the description. Steve's website is down in the description. We also got merch down there if you want a T-shirt or a coffee mug or something like that. Um, check us out on Instagram. And uh, that's all we got for you this Friday. We'll see you next week. Hey, and pre-order his book. Like, Hook a brother up. Thank you. Appreciate it. The price of two cups of coffee. (laughs) It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 